Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. My guest today is an actual genius, Ezra Koenig. Uh, <laughs> I've, I've um, never, I, this is the most pressure I've ever felt because, not because of you at all, man, but uh, I think you know, for my grown kids, uh, you are uh, the most important musical figure and they both gave me a lot of pressure to not fuck it up. So thanks for doing this. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So um, here's where I want to start. I don't know if you saw... Uh, oh, and Ezra Koenig, in case you don't know, is the lead singer, songwriter, uh, driving force behind Vampire Weekend. And I mean, Ezra, it is true. My, uh, I just checked and we started emailing in our little family group and when Sammy was 12 years old in like a friend named Ian slipped us your record one week before it came out. And we started emailing about it then. And I mean, now Sam's 24 and a best-selling uh, author. And like you are, uh, you've been a part of our joined familial conversation with him. And Anna, who's been, you read one of Anna's letters on your show once. So, uh, Oh, right. This, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's a big deal. All right. So <laughs> I, I put this question up last night on Twitter. Um, about asking people what album do you remember listening to for the first time and knowing with dead certainty that this was one for you, like for the ages, forever, like not something your brother handed down to you, something new where, where you knew your life was changed and your albums have been that for people. But I'm wondering what are a couple that were that way for you and like, who were you then? And, and what were the circumstances around it? Well, okay. I want to make sure. Uh, as you can imagine, I'm like I'm like a huge music head, so I, I feel like you could look at this a lot of different ways. So you're yes, saying, you really can. It, it wasn't handed down by by an older figure in the family, but does it? Do you do you have to have encountered it when it was new? Is that part of the the question? No, I mean it's funny people answered it different ways. I I've, I will say I've never had the reason. I've never had a bigger response to anything I've asked anywhere. Like J.K. Rowling responded. I I don't know J.K. Rowling. Like she responded. It so people took this question really personally and deeply. So however you take it is really fine with me. Like I, I would, for me, um, I heard Oh Mercy before it came out, and it was a life changing thing like that where I knew. Um, but also. Uh, the first time I heard uh, Born to Run, it had already been out for years. So answer it however it hits you. Okay. Well, th the first thing that comes to mind, because, um, yeah, the first CD I ever bought that I asked for was the Batman Forever soundtrack, which, you know, <laughs> yeah, there, there's, some, there's some songs on there. there. There's definitely some songs. But it wasn't like, I don't consider that like a defining album in my life. And so this is a funny one because it existed in my dad's record collection, but he didn't specifically put me onto it. So I still feel like, Counts. you know, this was me kind of dig digging into the archives. And it was partially around the age it was. I think I must have been 14 or 15. And I listened to um, the the second Elvis Costello album, This Year's Model. Oh. And... Of course, I, you know, maybe I knew a few Elvis Costello songs just because he had some very famous songs. Um, but there was something about listening to that record at a moment when I was kind of like a, a flip had switched in my mind, you know, which happens to a, a, most people when they're, you know, tweens and becoming teenagers. When you stop just thinking about the music that you like and you kind of really start to 
understand what does it mean to like this music? What do these people mean? So for, for me, listening to Elvis Costello, and I had this vague understanding that he was part of the punk movement, but clearly he kind of came at it from a different angle. And then I listened to that record, and maybe I'd known a few songs, but there's something specifically about hearing um, track one, No Action, which is oh, yeah. has like super punk energy, but is kind of like emotional. And I've never really gotten into what's called emo, although I respect it. But that that there for me was this interesting combination of kind of like deep romantic emotion, kind of like punk energy, just like classic songwriting and kind of wittiness, which I guess is how people would describe a lot of the best Elvis Costello. But hearing that, I was like, oh, this is like something I've been waiting for. I was familiar, you know, it's, I think that's maybe part of how, what comes to mind when you ask that question is not just when was there an album that I loved, but an, a really good album, I think sometimes feels like you were waiting for it and you didn't know it. I mean, that's probably how people describe almost anything good that comes into your life. Love, you know, any kind of situation where, where it's that feeling, not just of, wow, my whole world has changed, but almost a feeling of there was like a, I was waiting for this. The pieces fit. You know? Oh, um, yeah, com- completely. That I mean, that is the gift that that art in that way gives, right? Where where it completes. I mean, the corny, you know, you complete me, but it is true that when one of those out al- for me too, when one of those albums lands on you, and for me, it's a King of America, the Elvis album, King of America, is one of those. Oh yeah, yeah, great um, album. Uh, be where your worldview kind of shifts and maybe you were heading there or maybe you weren't, but something happens. Like I remember when, when I heard, uh, she said she was working for the ABC news. It was most of the alphabet issue. You know how to use her perfume was unspeakable. Like, you know, I remember just the way those words tumbled and the way he talked about America. I was like, Oh, and I was just a freshman, I think in college or sophomore. And I was like, Oh fuck. He's totally right. <laughs> yeah. So I can, I can see how that would have, um, how that would have hit you. How did it change? Did it, did it, change you in any way the way you like dressed or carried yourself hmm i i might have bought an elvis costello shirt on ebay <laughs> after that so <laughs> yeah i wasn't like I, de- I didn't start wearing like blazers to school no no <laughs> like, skinny ties and blazers no 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 i wasn't i wasn't gonna take it that far but well and also this is like a weird bonus one but it, it, this just was funny to me this is just like the kind of little coincidences that i i, I like so at that time, it was still the CD era, or was getting towards the end of the CD era. And I remember I bought that CD on, you know, one of these websites, CD Universe or something. Um, so, you know, I bought it, waited two or three weeks. But the, I bought another CD that I, I really wanted to hear um, in that same order. And that was Introducing by DJ Shadow, um, which was like a very iconic album of the late 90s. Yes. And all built through samples and you know at, at the time it was like very exciting and uh, he was very influential and when i got the two cds um at some point i realized because the cover of dj shadow introducing is a, a record store i realized that you could see this year's model by elvis costello in the record store when you looked hard enough and you know i could i could sit here and try to create some sort of meaning you know some sort of narrative about it, that you know intertextuality and like sure uh, the secret you know, synchronicity but the, yeah but the truth is i was just like oh that's cool and there's something about those two records that also i think it was important for me at the time i mean pro- probably i guess if people had to 
choose, they'd say the music of Vampire Weekend has leaned closer to Elvis Costello than to DJ Shadow. But still, there was seeing being that age where you're trying like like you asked the question did i start wanting to like dress and be like like a, a 1978 new wave kind of guy and the answer was no because i really liked it but i also really liked you know dj shadow and hip-hop and all sorts of music so that was also i don't know i guess like reassuring to see this like funny strange connection between two albums that didn't have much to do with each other even though it doesn't mean much but to me it was kind of like oh yeah not it's it's not of course you can listen to whatever music you want but you almost might be surprised that there's connections. And in this case, the connection is just merely one cover being on the other. But there was just something about that that, like, I don't know. Yeah, it felt like a sign or something to, to, that the two records I got had this bizarre connection. Yeah, well, it makes sense, too, because um, it allowed you to understand there's this universe where people are constantly trying to uh, separate in the world of music and grab certain things as, hey, that's my tribe only. And uh, it showed you there was this universe in a way. Oh, absolutely. And I think both of those musicians, DJ Shadow and Elvis Costello, if you you, uh, just wanted to think about them in in this kind of two-dimensional way, you could easily have a caricature that, you know... um, Elvis Costello, at least at that time, he, you know, he was just this young, angry dude making, you know, kind of literate punk and that DJ Shadow is this hip hop guy. But then when you actually take that next step and you imagine not just these guys' public personas, but how they might have actually made their music and what would that be like? And you realize, well, DJ Shadow, you think of him as being futuristic and hip hop and stuff. But then you realize to make his record, he had to be sitting there listening to like, italian Prague from the early 70s so you're like oh that okay so he's he's a guy he's an observer he's a he's and there's literally a sample on that record where it goes i'm a student of the drums but i'm also a teacher so he's a teacher and a student and then even with elvis costello you could listen to that that's the record that got me in it's the second album but then when you look through the rest of his discography and you're like oh this guy loves country he loves songwriting you see he's also this kind of observer who sees the connections between things so yeah, that was kind of important too. The, the, when when you stop just listening to artists and records as uh, as representing a vibe, and you start imagining what the the human beings behind it are like, which you know, if you become an artist, that that's very valuable to to think about what it was actually like for them in the studio, because it might not be what the finished project projects. You know what I mean? I completely do because, and now it is clear that, you know, it's obvious Elvis is a super historian and a formalist in many ways and uh, had to do that. And and when I listened to your uh, song Exploder about Harmony Hall, it's clear that your approach isn't just like the Elvis Costello get in there and blast it out approach. It's, there's a lot of what you learn from guys like DJ Shadow and how you approach putting together a record, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've always said with Vampire Weekend, it was we made a conscious choice to be a band, you know, a band with live instruments. And, you know, I'd been messing around with other types of more like, you know, beat oriented music before. But I had this feeling like I want a band. That's why I wanted to start a band. And but still, in terms of the approach, we never. Of course, you know, we, we just grew up in this era of of modern pop and hip hop, it, it, it influences everything. So of course it's, it's not even a choice. You can't help but think about the, the studio 
uh, in those terms, where, you know, maybe you start with a loop, maybe you start the whole song, you know, in Pro Tools or Ableton. Um, that just felt very natural. Um, more so than yeah, yeah. yeah when i when i picture like a late 70s recording where everybody's there with the the dividers up and kind of like you know put down the drum track it just it, it was never going to be like that for us um the, the romance of that even if there are times you want to capture an uh, sort of an analog feel you never feel like you have to have a fealty to that old kind of now outmoded approach to what it means to be a rock band Oh, totally. And arguably, you know, the DJ shadow approach, that's that's at this point a romanticized, outmoded approach too, where you picture this guy locked away with a sampler and a drum machine and just stacks of vinyl and stuff. Like that's that's an old fantasy too, but um of the competing fantasies, that one actually was more exciting to me, probably just because of my age, just because when my coming of age moment, however you want to define that, like eleven through fourteen or something was an era of, you know, celebrating that way of making music. And, you know, and when I see old documentaries, like Sympathy for the Devil, Rolling Stones, just like tracking, it's it's cool, it's vibey, but I've, I've also been like, I don't exactly find it romantic. It uh, seems like a headache to me. Yeah, well, the yes, the the one where they call the back the the one twenty feet from stardom where the Stones call the background singer up at four in the morning and get her out of bed and she has to come over and everyone's all fucked up in order to then yeah. she sings the greatest background vocal ever. But it does, I agree with you. It seems like a headache. Well, I just, and then also, I, I I think a lot of um, musicians find out very quickly that I don't know how to put it, but like the. Let's say you love Exile on Main Street or something. You know, it's a, it's a vibey record. It's dirty. It's full of, you know, energy and heart. And you know the story of it, that it's like essentially a self-produced record with this mobile recording rig down in the south of France. And it's like, see, you know, the truth is that even though that was made, obviously with like every a lot of live playing and tracking and stuff, um, if you wanted to capture the spirit of like the sound of of an Exile Main Street type record, you're almost better off like get getting a couple guys in the room in to like really study like the sounds because I think a lot of people are often disappointed where where they they think they're holding on to this old ideal of of how music should be recorded, get everybody in the room and record, but they do it and they don't and even when they got the right mics and the right preamps and stuff, then they listen to it back and they're just like why doesn't it feel vibey? And the an- and the answer is like, well, it probably would have been a little vibier if you just like sampled the drums from vinyl and like fucked it up and like you know. So it, it's it's a it's a funny um uh it, there's like an inherent contradiction a little bit like the you people want things to sound old and and live and then they record it live and it doesn't sound right. You know, it's a, a whole complicated thing. Well, that that I, I got that too from hearing the way you talked about writing. You know, the years it took you to write Harmony Hall, and uh, it reminded me of the. Once you're a working artist, I think for for me anyway, the more romantic idea is somebody who keeps at it in a way, who has this idea and doesn't settle and doesn't just try to be vibey. But like for me, the story of you know in the Eagles' doc of Jackson Brown writing that song and how hard it was and how long he tried and and. I do hear that in in your music, um, a sort of rigor that it it seems to me you hold uh, the idea of rigorously chasing down and prosecuting your idea in in very high esteem. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, and you know, like any artist, you sometimes question, is it worth all the time you're putting in? (laughs) You know, that's a classic studio question is, does anybody care? Will anybody know the difference? And who's to say? It's, you know, it's, it's a hypothetical question. You can't, there's only one timeline. So, but you always, so you always wonder at my being so detail oriented, you know, worrying about one line or, or one sound, is that crazy? And you don't know. And, and you don't even know when the record comes out because the truth is the, you know, every year there's, you know, I don't know, 20, 20 or 30 records that are really get a lot of attention from some combination of the, the critics and the, you know, streaming. I don't know. There, there's certain, there's only so many records every year that have like a moment, but then when you look long-term, which records continue to like people return to a lot and continue to like have songs that people discover and rediscover and stuff that gets even more complicated. So all I know is that I've, I think I've had a pretty good gut feeling about um, choosing songs and choosing like the, the finished products, you know, the, the version of songs to know if it's going to be the type of song that people think is cool when they first hear it, which is nice, but more, but what's much more important is, is there something about this song that however somebody reacts the first time, they'll come back to it. I, I, sometimes I use the word like legible, like, cause I hear cool shit all the time that there's nothing there's no shape to it, you know? And sometimes yeah. the more of a shape that something has, you know, it's, it's got a, it's, it's got a legend. There's a legibility. You can see what it is. And the clearer you can see what something is, the more likely you are to, to not like it at first because it's right there in front of you. You know, like you can, uh, sometimes the more something's hidden behind vibe, you, you can't even see what it's, you know, it's, it's murky, it's foggy. So you're not you're not gonna have a strong reaction to it you'd be like that's cool but sometimes the things that are like legible i've just found that they tend to um i don't know last longer and uh, you know i'm working with 12 years of experience maybe I'll, i'll feel differently when i'm 20 or 30 but yeah in those 12 years as somebody we've only put out four albums but when we go play a concert we're playing songs from you know songs that came out last year songs that came out 12 years ago so it's interesting to see like you know what has legs yeah, I wonder if it's a combination, having been at this just a little bit, like, you know, for over 20 years making stuff, I sometimes think, I understand what you mean by legibility and shape, but also us within that, don't you think a confidence that when you know you have it right, the ability to be an insularity of, uh, as long as there's a unified tone and voice, which you have and I want to talk about, but there's also an insularity sometimes in within the lyrics um, where they make sense within the context, but they're open for interpretation. And in fact, people have to lean in and really think about it. Like my daughter, Anna, has been obsessed with the Holy Roman Empire line since she heard it at eight years old, trying to unpack all of the possible meanings of that line. And uh, don't do you, I wondered are, when you leave something um, in the way like Michael Stipe used to when you leave something slightly less um, overtly clear, don't you think that makes the people who are committed become sort of almost fanatical about it? Yeah, sometimes. Yeah, I think it, it's a whole other question. Is like what 
why the average person likes a lot of music, right? They, uh, you know, from the time they're a child, maybe through their 20s, maybe these days people have, the way people interact with technology, they have even more time to listen to music. I think it used to be like people were over 30 and it's like keeping up with music felt like a real chore. It's really not that hard now. But anyway, there's people listen to a lot of music throughout their life. And the question of what's an artist or a band that you become very invested in, that you, when they put out a new record, you care. And you're actually interested to see, you know, like, uh, like for a lot of people, it was very exciting that when Bob Dylan put out Murder Most Foul last week, it's, uh, you know, and of course there's going to be the haters, but for a lot of people, it's like Bob Dylan, who hadn't put out a, a new song in eight years. And, you know, if you're like, if you're a hater, you could say he hasn't made like a good record in 20 years. And there's, and there's even, of course, there's going to be people who say he hasn't made a great record since the 70s. There, there's all sorts of viewpoints. Of course, he's this very famous, iconic guy. So there's a lot of viewpoints. But there's something about him, whether you like him or he frustrates you or whatever, that when you hear that he's got a new song, a new 17-minute song about the JFK assassination, you want to hear it. He's somehow entered this like pantheon Obviously, he's in a cultural pantheon, but he also did some pantheon in like the mind of of the fans. It's like he just he's at this different place. You you want to stick around. You want to see what comes next. You even even when Bob Dylan puts out like some record that I'm definitely not going to listen to, I'm always like I always like clock it because he's just like he just entered that that place. And and that's such an extreme example because you're talking about this like icon of the '60s who wrote all these, you know, like truly like important American songs, but even on a much smaller level, I think, yeah, that question is, and I think it has, I do think it has to do with lyrics. I always try to, so yeah, I, I think, you know, for somebody who loves R.E.M., absolutely, there's the sound of the music, and the lyrics maybe help wrap it up, help create that that feeling of of not only is this music that I like, but this is music that I care about and that I want to follow into the future. It's It's a mysterious thing, and you know, I love lyrics. I love writing lyrics. It's one of my favorite parts of, you know, making records. I study other people's lyrics. It's, it's a, to me, that's like the, to be a little pretentious, the, the true sublime moments of like popular music are when production, uh, harmonies, melody, and lyrics come together. It's like, a, it's a moment and you it, they all work together, but it's like the lyrics are kind of what sews it all up. And I've heard so much music where I love the production and I thought the chords are beautiful, but somehow the lyrics didn't stick the landing. And it doesn't, they don't have to be sophisticated. They just have to be right. Um, but anyway, so I'm, I'm a, like a lyrics person. No, it, I love that. Part. What do you mean by right? Well, go further. What do you mean by they have to be right? Because I agree with you, but I want to hear the way you, I want to hear the way you well, sew that up. Okay. I guess because it maybe I'm, I've been self-conscious about it because when Vampire Weekend came out, it is partially like the image we projected, you know, being like, going to Columbia and, and having fun with the collegiate vibe, which, uh, you know, arguably worked very well, but it maybe in some ways backfired. So, Oh yeah. I have questions re- about that. People really zoomed in on the, the, the expensive words though, you know, like our, our, our most famous songs starting out were like Mansard roof, Oxford comma, you know, and I, I thought these things were kind of funny, but I think, you know, people were like, okay, this is, these are guys who are, I don't know if people thought we were highbrow, but they thought we were attempting to be highbrow. There, you know, there's a pretension that these are, these are like highly specific, expensive words. And I guess what I'm saying is that 
I've always felt weird about it because, you know, when, when I, in terms of the songs that I really like, I, uh, I know that, that, that sometimes the sublime moment happens when somebody pulls out a, a surprising word or a word you don't know that well. And I know that sometimes the sublime moment happens in when it's just pure simplicity. And, um, so I, I, I guess what I'm saying is it's important not to, for me, not to draw a dividing line between, um, sophisticated lyrics that are, you know, abstract and poetic and, and confusing and, and use like unusual words versus simple, because in both of those styles, you'll find those sublime moments uh, where something's just right. So, you know, when people ask me, I remember one time, this is very early on, we, we were doing some show and we covered uh, Walls by Tom Petty. And, yeah. I've, I, you know, like, like everybody, I always like Tom Petty. And we did the... Uh, at the show, I think when I introduced the song, I said, oh, now we're going to play a song like Tom Petty's called Walls. Great lyrics. And then we launched into it. And then somebody like wrote up the show later and they were like, oh, and then uh, they, they covered a Tom Petty song and Ezra kind of, you know, snarking, snarkily put down uh, Tom Petty's simple lyrics. I don't know. Maybe... Maybe I just something about <laughs> the way I look or my voice or something. People, they just this person just assumed, or maybe just the vibe of Vampire Weekend at the time. They assumed that I was uh, that I wouldn't be the type of person who would appreciate, you know, even walls fall down. Like, but the truth is, I love that. I uh, and when I think when, whenever I think about my favorite favorite songs of all time, it's 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 usually like that. Uh, I will I will always love you, Dolly Parton. You know these. Right, well, yeah, well, I when when you when I saw you, uh, we we all went to see you play um, at the Webster Hall show, and you played Sunday Morning. I mean, you can't have a more simple lyric by like arguably the greatest lyric, you know, one of the five greatest writers of lyrics ever, and it's as simple as can be. Uh, and it, it was clear to me you sang that song with total love. Oh, absolutely, and I think I think hopefully I'm not not going to compare myself to the Dolly Partons and the Lou Reeds of the world, but hopefully within the the vampire weekend universe you find you find simple moments of clarity in the lyrics right next to these maybe more abstract songs or songs that are having a little more fun with the language cuz i to me it's like yeah you need both um and an artist who only has one and not the other is you know to me as a fan is kind of missing something and when i think about all the the people that I really like, you know, it, it's, it's kind of, my taste in some ways is kind of basic, you know, a Bob Dylan, you think <laughs> about murder, murder, most foul, like, again, this song really struck me. I've listened to it probably five or six times since it came out. And it's, it's got dream logic, abstraction, it's hard to put your finger on exactly what it's about, you want to spend a lot of time with it. And then I think about like, one of my other favorite Bob Dylan songs that has crazy verses, but then the, the chorus is, I want you so yes. bad. <laughs> and, you know, that's, yeah. that's the dichotomy that, that I love. And I, and I really think you find that in almost all, every great artist. So, of course, I aspire to that. Yeah, I'm, uh, I really am conscious of like, uh, I'm not going to talk a lot on this because but I could I could kill this whole thing by just talking about Dylan lyrics, by talking about, you know, to be employed rhyming with Delacroix. Um, <laughs> and the, the, the way that he was able, um, you know, do that. But, you know, I think using your idiolect in a non-self-conscious way is really important, right? Because 
why should you change how you express yourself because you're worried that someone will think you're being uh, presumptuous or pretentious? I think there's no 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 reason to. But this does tie into a question that Anna wanted me to ask, and it's a great one, which is how did you synthesize the various groups who felt like they got the joke? Like as you'd say something, as you say, you thought the whole Oxford comma Mansford group thing was funny, and you're kind of sending up intellectuals. Intellectuals felt some ownership over it, right? Like the people who first liked that shit, the critics were the very people who did give a fuck about arguing over an Oxford comma. And it it does remind me a little bit of the dilemma Cobain often talked about. With His was with a different group of people. But how did that start to make sense to you? That like, obviously these people and this world from which you felt both included because of um, who you were and that your family had gone to Ivy League, all that stuff. But there also was a, a sense of alienation from that group who then embraced you. Like, how did that all hit you as a, as a young person and as you've gone forward? Yeah, it's, it is a good question. And I, I mean, I, I still struggle, struggle with it a little bit because I think, I think only a certain percentage of your audience is going is, is gonna to truly see what you see in the music. And I don't know, you know, is it 10%? Is it 20? Is it 50? I don't know. But it's never going to be the whole audience. And um, that's okay. And and actually, it's kind of like, it's the way it should be, because you should be so, so rather than be like, well, I see this correctly, and some people get it, and some people don't. I think the right way to think about it is like, you're incredibly lucky that somebody saw something different in it, and like came along for the ride as well. Um, and, and I always, I've always described you know, our audience is like some type of coalition. I don't know exactly who's who's in the mix, but, you know, I think every album has like kind of brought in somebody new, you know, probably lost somebody, but then it brought somebody new in too. And, you know, if there were stereotypes about our, uh, who our audience was, you know, obviously people starting out, people like, oh, this is for like, you know, privileged college kids. You know, maybe, but you know, I went to a privileged college. Those guys listen to a, a lot of music, and, and, yeah. and only some of yeah. it is like Vampire Weekend. I mean, you know, um, and even in terms of the critics, when we came out, we had critics who were very passionate about us uh, in both directions. Um, and you know, even then, we've we've never we there there we I don't think we've ever quite had that like. We, we've definitely had like success, but I don't, I don't think we ever had a moment where just like everybody agreed on us, but that, you know, that, that's, that's the way it's supposed to be. You can't have everybody agree on you, agree about you. So I guess I've always thought that the, that, that, yeah, our audience is a coalition in, in some way that the, some people just like it because they like the music or they like the vibe some people feel like they're in on the joke. Some people maybe feel like they see the sense of humor, but that they don't care anyway. So I don't know. I've always felt like we're some weird, uh, we have a weird coalition of probably some intellectuals, some people, but I think we also probably have some people who are, who, who don't find us pretentious and who find the intellectualization of music to be pretentious. So yeah, I, I guess... Yeah, well, I don't think intellectual, but I, um, I would just challenge, like, why even worry about pretentiousness with intellectual? Those are two separate things, aren't they? Like, yeah, someone can love the intellectual um, 
uh, integrity behind what you do without thinking that's pretentious. They can get off on that and the emotional resonance and the questions that you're asking and the sense of community, right? They can, like, I don't think, uh, if if I were you after this many albums, I would I would stop. Wor- I wouldn't worry about the pretentious argument. You're not pretentious, dude. You're 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 not pretending to anything. You're the real thing, and your audience. I, I was at that show. I've been at three shows, but I was at that show, and you had a group of people in there who loved each other for loving you. They they felt all of it, um, which well, you must pick up on from the stage, oh, right? Well, oh, hundred percent. And I think the past year. Um, back back when live music existed um yes. was very fulfilling in in some ways the most fulfilling uh tour album cycle whatever you want to call it that that we ever did because there was something not 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 about us as a band but something about our relationship with the audience was reaching a type of maturity and i think it has to do with just simply the number of albums i've actually had like discussions with other people where they're like even our third album, which was kind of like our biggest critical success, there was something about the touring of that album, like it just like the tickets were the slowest of any album. I'm sure there might have been other things happening in the world, but you know, our uh, our first two albums came out right in front of and right after the beginning of a recession. So you know, who knows? But there's something about the third album, even though it's it's a lot of people's favorite albums, and, and it. Uh, favorite vampire weekend album and it had it had a real like it felt like a real important moment for us there was still something and i think about that just felt like the shows didn't feel quite as exciting the tickets were a little slower than we expected um and there's something and i think it has to do with just like album three it's a really important time to like bring your a game creatively but also you know, it's your third album. So there's maybe a little bit of fatigue as well, where people are like, you know, I've seen them once, maybe I even saw them twice, I don't need to go to the show. There's, there's, and 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 maybe even the number of songs you have, it's, it's, it's more than you used to, but it's still not quite the excitement of four albums worth that you can go to a show and you can pull from four albums. And I've talked to other people about this similar feelings where they're like, it's not that they dislike their third albums, but just there was something about three that felt didn't feel quite as exciting and there's something about four that's almost like this new batch of songs that you've made it to four somehow feels like you're you've reached a maturity with your audience and the the feeling that you're describing because you know we we've had we've had some real hardcore fans since the beginning and we've played great shows we've had been lucky to have great shows since the beginning but so we've seen people sing along and be excited but there's something about that I only felt when we started touring the fourth album, where the maybe because you're talking about a decade plus of songs that yes. reflect over a decade in my life, over a decade in the band's life, and over a decade in these people's life. Like you're describing your son, he get into us when he was 12, and now he's 24. Like 12 to 24, that's like one of the craziest 12 year transitions in in a human's life. 24 yes. to 36, eh? You know, like. <laughs> Yeah. Whatever, 36 yes. to 48, I don't know. <laughs> Zero to 12, you only remember half of it. 12 to 24, oh. that's crazy. You know, and the idea that you might have been listening to something when you were 12 and then something new came out when you're 24 and you're still trying to, you know, spend time with the music and relate it to your own life. That's, you know, th- there's a, 
I hate to, this word has been so kind of destroyed by the internet, but there's something epic <laughs> about it. I kind of hate using the word epic because of yeah, it's, it's a silly so word, like, but I agree. Like I love it though for this. But the, and and there's and there's something, you know, even I don't know, makes me think of like Tree of Life or you know the Terrence Malick oh, yeah. movie or something. There's I, a lot of course, of interesting so I, art I, yes. that a lot of it, it's a, a lot of art that I like sometimes. And I haven't watched Tree of Life in a long time, so I might be getting it wrong. But th- there's a, an interesting idea that's like, you know what? Um, some lives have crazy moments in them. Some some lives, some, you know, uh, have somebody was there for, you know, a historical event. Somebody, you know, fought in a war or something. So, but, and some lives seem smaller. But every life, as a function of time, eventually becomes to use the unfortunate word again, epic, because even if you never leave your small town and even compared to somebody who saw the world or something and, you know, all that shit, uh, even if just the fact that you were around for that long, even if you stayed in one place your whole life and you watched things change and over, eventually time passing is, again, epic. And there's something about like when this record came out, I got so many notes from people that, I don't know, it made me feel connected to the fan base in a way I'd never had before. And, you know, we gave the example of your son, 12 to 24, that's pretty huge. But then I get ones from people being like, I was literally in college when your first college-ass album came out. So, you know, I liked it. And it's a song called right. Campus, and it felt collegiate. And then your second album came out. I was just getting a job, and I related to this lyric. And when your third album came out... Um, you know, I was in my late 20s and I, I felt confusion and that record has a lot of darkness and confusion and, and I really related to that. And and then when this album came out, I now I'm married or I have a kid or something. And the they really a lot of people essentially saying that each record came out uh, at, at a different moment in their life. And and they they felt like a little bit like we'd grown up together. And then of course, now I'm feeling that way when I'm thinking about the audience as like, you know, obviously there's people who we get new fans every record, but there still is a feeling with that core fan base of like, like, damn, we're really like, we're on this journey through life together, which is kind of the best thing any musician could hope for. I think maybe it's different. Like, I I guess you could feel that way about a novelist or like, you know, somebody makes movies and TV shows. Sure, you could grow up with their work too. But there's something about records where it's like the record comes out, you spend yes. time with it, you go maybe you go to the show. There is something about the music where the feeling of being part of a community and growing up together is like really I think essential for like a long-term career and especially for us having been gone for 6 years to feel that level of connection. You know, because of course you're hoping for like, you know, you want to get like a, uh, you want the record to like chart well, or you want to um, sell more tickets and you want to get good reviews. Of course you want all that shit. But on this record to have that feeling of, of community and like we're on this ride together, I, at, once I felt it, I realized that's what I needed. That's what I needed to feel good about, you know, oh, continuing yeah. to do this. Oh, to- yeah. I mean, I- I'm about to ask you this question. I-, I wrote down to ask you talking about exactly this thing, because yes, like the people who've been watching the stuff Dave and I do from our first movie to all the way to billions, they feel some sure they feel some kind of kinship or like we understand we have a group of people who watch our stuff, but it's totally different than what I feel towards 
the musicians who matter the most to me. And like, were you emotionally prepared for how much you meant to people so quickly? Like, which is to say, musicians who enter the consciousness in the way you did, which only happens once. You may say, oh, there are other bands, 20 or 30 albums a year. But I think like the way, because of what you were singing about when you did, because of the bond that your audience has with you, because of how you know good you are at what you do. Like, I only think it happens like once or twice a decade where a, a musician or a band enters the consciousness in the way that your band did. And you end up living in the dreams and imaginations of your fans. Um, and who feel like they're in a dialogue with you. Like I felt that way about Stipe and Dylan, you know, older than than me. Uh, and and so how did you learn to manage it? Because I agree with you now, it feels like you've really synthesized it. But was that hard to manage being so young for the first two records in particular and and understanding the way people had a version of you living in their imaginations and their dreams? Well, I, when I was younger, I definitely focused more on the negative and, and I'm, you know, like most people, I'm still not totally out of the woods, but I've mellowed quite a bit. So when I was younger, um, and this is classic, mo most artists describe a similar feeling that for every person who would, you know, real early days, send a note on MySpace or something being like, oh man, you guys are my favorite band, blah, blah. for every person who'd do that. Even for every 10 people who do that, you'd see one person being like, like, you guys fucking suck. And that's what you would dwell <laughs> on. So I think I was, and I think I've always been that way a little bit, you know, that's like arguably like a, a, a problem I've, I've had is that, that I don't like, I don't like take a praise very well because I'm, I've always had this feeling about like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Okay. Glad you feel that way. It's a cruel world. Like, you know, even when like a, a loved one is like, oh man, I'm really like, you, you guys really put on a great show. I'm just like, yeah, we'll see. Yeah. I'm glad you feel that way. We'll see what happens. Huh. So I've always, right. I've always been that person a little bit. And yeah, so I was more focused on the, the other people. And I was like, wow, these people aren't giving, aren't being fair or something. And I was, you know, and I always had this like chip on my shoulder too about, yeah, I, I understand we project this kind of Ivy League thing, but I'm like, you know, regular middle class guy you know like i had student loans and stuff meanwhile like a significant percentage of the other indie bands that were very popular at the time who didn't have similar conversations i knew all these people i'm like come on these guys all went to private school these guys don't have student loans come on <laughs> at least like dish right. it out to them a little bit so i always had i had feelings i was more concerned at first with being uh, uh like a villain or something i, I didn't want to be that um so I couldn't focus on the good things. And and I think, like I was just saying, that that in some ways the most I ever was able to focus on the, like, damn, we've really been around for a minute. We really built something special was on this uh, past album. So, yeah, I, I think I didn't even worry about it uh, at first. Um, and I've always kind of, over the years, you know, when you start as a band, you're it's so hard to make a living in music that, you don't even know what your goals are. Your goals are to make right. a living in music. And then you're like, well, what if I could give you twice as much money? You'd be like, well, that's probably good because then I don't have to stress or get a job in between records. So you don't know what you're shooting for. And then sometimes you see artists answer that question. Well, like, yeah, what are your goals? We just want to be the biggest we can be. And you're like, biggest we can be? Well, I don't know. It's like you're, you're figuring it out in real time. And I think what I've realized over the four albums and 12 years is that the best place for a band like us is not to like 
is not to strive to make a big dent in like the culture because you know like that not 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 much good comes of that but to have a deep long-term connection with our audience and that's uh so you know if people feel like our records uh speak to the moment that they're living through too and we're on this ride together like that that again that that's as good as it gets and uh i'm not scared about that that's what i like we strive for the premise of this podcast originally was about inflection points these big moments in people's lives where something was about to shift and Mm-hmm. The, and by my friend Ian just texted me, uh, I got your MySpace page, MySpace page in October of 2007. So that's when I started listening and the kids started listening to wow. uh, Vampire Weekend. Yeah. He just wrote me that that's when. So that's the thing. That's why it is such a long time sort of relationship we've had with what you do. But can you talk about the first time that you, Rossum, and the Chris's played together? Like, did you know, like we've, we, we, we found, um, you know, that blog that you wrote where you talked about how you had this new song and uh, oh, yeah, Walcott yeah. and all that stuff. Uh-huh. Um, my my kids found that. But can you talk about what it felt like when you played together with those particular people for the first time? Like, did you sense, oh, oh, wait, this is something? Definitely. I, I'm, I'm definitely like a, like a, as much as making a record, you have to get into the weeds. I'm like a big ideas person. Like I love just like cooking up big ideas. And the, to me, it's hard to say exactly what the first Vampire Weekend song was, but one. Well, of you them said was it was Chris. Walcott. You said it was Walcott, and that. Oh, well, that, that might that might have been the first recording for sure. Right. But I, I feel like I wrote Walcott and Oxford Comma around the same time, and I guess both of those, you know, they were kind of like. Setting a tone. Walcott like references Cape Cod. Yes. The, uh, and that's that's one of those things too. Like it's not, I don't even want to call it a joke. It's not like a joke joke, but to me, having a song about Cape Cod, I found it so funny. I don't know why. <laughs> of course, of I've been in Cape Cod a couple times, but it wasn't a huge part of my life. And then Oxford comma, I was like, this is this funny phrase, Oxford comma, and I wrote those chords on my parents' piano, and there was something about it. Like it's it's uh, it goes from G to uh d7 and and it has the and having the, the way i kind of phrased it you know this i'm not being very sophisticated i just kind of there's something about that d7 that just to me sounded kind of like regal and so yeah. then, then this plus oxford comma i was like ooh, this is like there's this song it has some a little pathos but it's also kind of funny it's like a little kind of sounds like fancy but it's not that fancy so anyway i was very excited about that song and i started to like cook up this idea of like an uh, i would have probably said a preppy band i was like yeah because i like preppy clothes are so funny and weird i was cooking up this big idea but i have big ideas like that once a day um (laughs) and they you know like there's definitely a side of me that's just like full like you know Colonel Tom Parker vibe of just like, what if I found a guy who could do this? You know, like, <laughs> I always have kooky ideas, and it and sometimes it has nothing to do with what I would actually be good at. So anyway, I had this kooky big idea kind of, and and a couple songs that were pointing in that direction, 
but that idea could have like uh, withered on the vine without the the right group of people. So then I think with Oxford comma, I started messing around with on it with Rostam and you know, he's, he's always been, um, he was always kind of like the producer in our circle. We'd, we'd even collaborated on little recordings before that, but I kind of brought in this song and he actually wrote the bass line on that song. So he starts writing a bass line and he's playing it on this keyboard in my room. And I'm kind of like, yeah, this, this has a good vibe. And then we get in the, and then we finally get in the room with everybody. And, um, you know, CT, he was always known as a really great guitarist uh, in our crew, not as a drummer, but he, but we needed a drummer. So he did it. And then he starts playing, playing it. And, um, just to hear his take, we already had an idea for a groove, but his, hear his take and the way he played in Bayo playing bass and just the way it came together, I was kind of like, huh, there's, there's something I could see the way in which I had the right very very quickly in, in a in you know maybe that's that's one night messing in the dorm room one night in the practice space and it, over those two nights i think i saw very quickly which is the, the thing you dream about as a as a musician in which a an idea i had and a song i had were through the uh arrangement collaboration of the other guys and then also the way they played suddenly you know it's so much bigger and it felt real and it wasn't just, you know, a kooky idea. Yeah, it, like, because anybody could be like, I got a couple songs. Think, wouldn't it be fun if there was like a preppy band? It was, it felt like I, it felt like uh, I was seeing it unfold in front of me. And I felt like the other people understood what I was gesturing at and added to it and pushed it even further. Um, and, you know, even today, working with, over the course of these four albums, worked with a lot of different people started working with Ariel Rekshide on the third album and this fourth album, all sorts of people. And even now that's, that's what I'm always looking for is the, cause I'll, you know, I'll keep cooking up my big ideas and have my songs and stuff, but to find the people who, you know, take it and add to it and whose performances bring a new type of energy. That's, that's what like a record should be. Um, so, yeah, that the first time I I felt it was probably working on Oxford Comma. We might have been working on Walcott too. I mean, Walcott, you know, similar thing. You kind of write this little song on piano, and then suddenly you're playing it, and like CT's going hard, and Bayo and Rostam right. are adding all this energy, and you're like, "Damn, this kind of goofy <laughs> song about Cape Cod actually does feel like some kind of modern preppy collegiate." I'm hesitant to say punk, but like high energy, weird music. And we would play that song at like some party at Columbia. And you're almost like, whoa, this almost like this whole vibe looks like what I dreamed about. Damn, that's the magic. Yeah, that's amazing. And I love that you grabbed onto it then and knew it. Like we're able to somehow be aware that it was working. No, I was saying that's the magic though. Like most people don't have the ability to like... um, grab onto it and know that it's real in the moment and you did somehow huh yeah and, and even the fact that you know columbia is like a funny school because it's it's an ivy league school so it has a lot of ivy league assholes and pretentious people and kind of like ambitious greedy <laughs> type people yeah um but it's still it's in new york so it's like 
anybody who goes to Colombia who's if any, if anything all those the, the ambition and the greed and the assholeness the, the, that's just I don't even think it that has that much to do with the Ivy League aspect there's just a lot of people like that come to New York to you know make their make their name um so Colombia is a funny place because it has that energy but because it's you know right in the middle of Manhattan or the upper part of Manhattan and you you know you're on the campus and you step off and you're just in New York the you can only people can't um can't get lost in the uh the i the kind of ivy league aesthetic dream the way they can at at other schools or you know forget about the ivy league just you know some some beautiful old campus where you can like really be like wow i'm like i'm basically in harry potter here like columbia right. you could always see you could always see past like the the backdrop because literally you might be looking at some kind of like Harry Potter ass building, but you know that the bus is right there that goes uptown. You know, it's just Columbia. Just it's a facade of this Ivy League shit, but it uh, you can't yeah. get lost in the dream. And so anybody <laughs> who went to Columbia who would try to be like a really preppy person, you'd always felt like that eh, doesn't quite work here. You know, like the you know the average person at Columbia doesn't dress any different than somebody at NYU. You know. It's, yeah. it's, so there's like a funny thing about Columbia that it has this history and it's part of this organization of schools and yet it always it's rings kind of false. So there's even something funny too about playing a couple early shows and be a this like I don't even it kind of like a fraternity co-ed fraternity situation thing called Saint A's. They have this beautiful old townhouse and we could like you know go play there and they had like a chandelier which is on the cover of our first album and it would kind of like for a brief moment you could like look at the scene and be like, wow, this, this is like a crazy Ivy league dream. But then you, uh, it, to me, it was always undercut by the fact that then right outside is like Riverside park and the city. Yes, it, of course. I, I, like, so I get, yeah. And obviously this is totally like the narcissism of small difference and splitting hairs, but I always kind of felt like, and this is also something I had to, recognize too once you come out and you're kind of getting criticized and you're kind of like well come on it's it's not quite like that i'm not that guy this our the way we started wasn't like that you also got to realize that you uh your own desire to make people understand everything perfectly is something that you have to get that's actually not their problem that's your problem um but you know i could talk about it with you that there's always this to watch um there's something cool about having like the the right place to play at a party, but it wasn't like overwhelming. I could, it, it allowed us to always look at Vampire Weekend as this like, as, as like a, a project, which I think also made it easier to uh, wriggle around into the second, third and fourth albums and not be like bogged down by this. Uh, sure. Of course. This early thing, which, which I think uh, probably a lot of people expected from us. And sometimes I look back and I, I put myself in the, the, the shoes of an early hater and I'm just like, oh, okay. Yeah, if you all you saw was like a couple of the early videos and you look like, who are these guys? I could understand why you wouldn't necessarily be betting on us to like, you know, be playing the garden 12 years later. Uh, I, I was pretty sure that that's where it was going, to be honest with you, man. The music was too good. Um, and uh, and and I, I will say people should go I, whether and, and check out that old blog thing you wrote because the stuff you wrote about Ralph Lauren gives a great insight into this stuff. And I don't know, if, have you seen the documentary about him? Did you watch it? It came out oh, last no. year. That, that'd be a good quarantine watch. Yeah, I remember hearing yeah, it came out, but I didn't watch it. 
it's not it's not like it's worth it you'll really enjoy it uh, t- uh, i'm gonna ask you just one more question but i just want to say two things uh, as i i get there one you've said two great titles for your greatest hits record one would be if you had the balls to call it epic and the other is uh narcissism of small differences those would both be really <laughs> I'm great yeah. titles for your greatest hits albums uh when when yeah right epic and narcissism of small differences um the, but so the second big inflection point, obviously, was when Rostam and you decided not to stay a band. And I'm not interested in the gossipy part of it. I, I couldn't give a shit. But what I'm interested in is that this band that you started posting with on Tumblr as a kid that you'd become an adult with wasn't ever going to be exactly the same. And I know you say it's always like this project that was evolving, but I just want to uh, emotionally those big moments I'm in my own life, you know, I'm. Uh, we follow each other on Twitter. I'm sure you've seen me talk about these down moments of of my creative journey. Like, was and it did take you six years to get the record right. Were you scared ever? Just or did you know you wouldn't stop until you had it right? Like, did this idea that now it was really on your shoulders even more, and you were going to have to do it without this person who was your check in in a way? How, how did it? How did you process it? Well. On, on just like a really practical level, I was very lucky to have the continuity of of Ariel Rekshad between albums three and four. Yes. I, if I, you know, I really, and he's he's such a close friend, and you know, just just to have that him as a, as a, you know, just just somebody like I, I love and I love talking about music with, and just to have also provide some like sonic continuity. That obviously on a practical level took a huge weight off my shoulders. Um, but the way I saw it was like having having the lineup change, yeah, and without going too deep into it, it, it having the lineup change w- w- was really not a big deal on the inside because from the jump, there was always this idea that kind of Vampire Weekend was a project. I was the leader of the project. And of course, yes. with huge input from other people, like I said, Vampire Weekend will always never be just me. It's always about finding great collaborators but there was from albums one through three there was already a very natural progression in terms of how the records got made and how decisions got made so getting into album four that part wasn't very difficult it felt like it truly felt like a four-part progression that that made total sense to everybody within the organization so even Ross Tim leaving kind of like made total sense based on the way we'd been heading um but the things that were on my mind uh, in terms of like, yeah, getting something right and, and the fear of being gone six years, it wasn't just about the, the lineup changing. If anything, the thing that preoccupied me in those years was, was a real feeling that we'd gotten lucky with our timing, that our first album came out in 2008 at the height of some sort of uh, global interest in New York indie bands or whatever. And that uh, over the next five years, we kind of got to like peak with uh, before like the the hammer fell with our third album with Modern Vampires. And I told you, even for me, as much as some people saw that album as our crowning achievement, being touring it just didn't feel that way to me. We were kind of like, huh, you know, and, and it, you know, not uh, obviously like numbers aren't the most important thing. But even then, I was kind of like, well, an album, too, we did three nights at Radio City. Huh. 
that, that was really exciting on Contra. That that really felt like this high point for me. Three nights at Radio City, 18,000 yes. tickets. Holy shit, that's insane that we sold that much. Then album three, we go and play Barclays. And, you know, it's like we, we eventually got to like 12 or something. And again, these are all incredible numbers. I'm not trying to be dismissive. No, it's at the all. emotional part. No, of course it's, it's the, the emotional, emotional part. part. We, and I was yes. kind of like, well, I thought I thought we just dropped our crowning achievement album. The you know, not as many people want to see us. Okay, you know, and huh. then um, so so whatever. I, I that that album I already felt like okay. Well, I'm glad we got it out, but it, it already felt like damn. Between our first album and our third album, we were part of something that's ending. And, you know, we don't have to go into the details of what that thing was. But, you know, aesthetically, in terms of a, a wave of music, a wave of interest, uh, guitars, whatever you want to call it, there was a lot of people saying that something was ending. And so in some ways, what I'm thinking as I work on this record, the last record, you know, I took some years off just to chill. And then I'm back in working and I'm thinking to myself, well, okay, this in some ways as much as we're people sometimes assume that when you're more established, there's less pressure, but I feel like there's more pressure. And, and I felt like there's especially a lot of pressure. Cause I was like, I've got this like conundrum to solve because not only do we have a lineup change, which people are going to read to how, you know, however they want, people are going to make assumptions about, well, this song sounds, you know, and, and I, sometimes people are right. Sometimes often they're wrong because people, you know, no, people like read so much into like, well, this sounds like that because of this. And these people just kind of like read the liner notes. They don't necessarily have a deep understanding, but of course, but I understand it. Cause I'm that person too. I'm not trying to denigrate them. I, I love looking at liner notes and charting the history of bands and stuff. So there's, so there's a change in the band. And also there's just a change in the culture. The, there hadn't been like, I never wanted to be called an indie band in the first place, but we were, so you just got to accept it. And we're entering a moment when that's, uh, at the very least, you could say, had become unfashionable. And so I'm kind of like, man, this is like, <laughs> this is like funny timing, where it's like, you got a lineup change, you've been gone a little bit too long. Six years is definitely in the a little bit too long category when it comes to uh, maintaining an audience and a business. And on top of that, you're entering a... I don't want to say hostile territory, but you're entering, you're re-entering a, a moment when you are, can easily be considered as something that might have been interesting six years ago or 10 years ago or 12 years ago and is no longer really that important. And, and I've seen people stumble in those moments, even people who made good music just didn't know how to present their music. And, you know, if this happens with every generation of musicians, you get older and it's weird. And then to, to complicate things further, as much as I'm a you know neurotic uh, guy who likes to think about culture and, and the industry and all that stuff, I also unfortunately am just like an artist. You know, I get into I get interested <laughs> in shit, and, and yep. I want to. And all these things aside, you know, so like the the way we're going to be perceived by fans of the band, by critics, all that stuff. Then there's also this part of me that sometimes just wants to reference something that I think is cool that it, or, or say something in a song that maybe could be taken the wrong way. So all those factors together made me feel as I would talk with, you know, the other people in the band and the people we work with, the metaphors I'd always come up with was like, you know, 
trying to hit a tiny bullseye or maybe not even like you don't even have to hit the bullseye but you have to hit that little thing just outside the bullseye to do okay and even that's yeah. kind of difficult and and the metaphor that i came with a lot was uh, that actually spoke to me the most was was landing a plane not that i actually know anything about landing a plane <laughs> you know i've, I've yeah. been i've been on a plane i've never been in a cockpit but when i th- picture landing a plane you can feel the way you you know that up there the the pilots are like flipping switches and and sometimes you feel the plane, it kind of feels like you're going a little too far to the left and they have to counterbalance and they have to make sure the speed is right because it's the type of thing that can, if you do it more or less correctly and you're watching the even even the crazy wind that's bouncing this plane all over the place, if you, if you monitor it correctly, you can ride it out and you can still land. And yet there's also the potential if you're not monitoring these little things to just crash so there's yes. something about that metaphor that really and i didn't feel that way with the first three albums i had i'm not saying i didn't have anxiety about will these albums be successful but you know the the big cultural picture stuff and the lineup that had nothing to do with the first three records so this one i had this feeling like we're landing a plane and is there is there a way to to make a record that feels like our fourth album that is still different enough that we didn't like give up and just try to say like, Hey guys, remember us? Like here's some shit that sounds like the first three records. Just please accept it. Cause th- that's a move. It's a classic move. And usually it, well, you it know, could work, but not to satisfy your creative ambitions, which is at this yeah, point, it, what the thing is about for you. I know, which is that the, the unfortunate part of being an artist. So it's, yes. yeah, it, it's funny to have to try to navigate all those things. And, and also to, to imagine to yourself, ask yourself, what's best case scenario with this record? Because, you know, if uh, the way the music works, it's not a, it's not like an infinite trend line. You can't be like, well, our first album, you know, our first album, we did this. So by album four, we should probably be, um, you know, bigger than Taylor Swift. Like, that's not the way it works. <laughs> so you also have to, you can't just like track the trend lines that way. You have to like really take into account all this information and try to find a way to yeah, push forward with continuity, but different enough that it feels like the journey is still going, you know, well-crafted enough that people have songs they can like get into, but not such a crowd pleaser that there's still not like conversation and debate about it. You know, like it's, it's a, but I guess yeah, that's, that's what it's all about. It's finding that sweet spot. Well, uh, I wish you could have been in people's homes as they were listening, like all of us now in different places, my wife and I together, but my, you know, the kids each in different places and the way we all started um, texting, talking, emailing about it and then other friends. And it was clear to me that like your audience so was so sort of uh, grateful that you went through all of that. Okay. Last thing I'm letting you go, but Mm -hmm. can you give my daughter a hint about Holy Roman Empire, what that line means, please? Well, even a hint, just a direction. Okay. She well, spent years trying to figure it out. Well, one thing I'll say is that <laughs> the, the, the name of the band, Vampire Weekend, and the character Walcott originally um, came from a short film I started making the uh, summer after my freshman year of college, which we never finished because we weren't really, this is me and my like, uh, my high school friends in New Jersey, we never really were amb- ambitious enough to make a movie, but it was, you know, just kind of like horsing around in the backyard when somebody had like a DV camera. 
And, and I think one day I found the footage and I edited a trailer, which lives somewhere online. But the plot of the original film Vampire Weekend was yes. um, my friend Wes, who's also a musician, a great band called Ra Ra Riot. We've been friends forever. I think he played my father and the opening scene, this was our concept, was that he was killed by a, a vampire. And I came home and I was like, Dad, what's happening? And, and he said, listen, I'm going to die, but you need, here's what you need to do. You need to go to Cape Cod and tell the mayor that vampires are taking over the country. And um, for us, I don't know, you know, I don't think we were even stoned, but it's pretty stoner humor. The idea, <laughs> yeah. the idea of there being a mayor of Cape Cod just had us dying. <laughs> I don't know. We thought that was so funny. Mayor of Cape Cod. And there's also this idea that I, Walcott, had to go to Cape Cod. So anyway, in the final song, Walcott has to get out of Cape Cod. That's whatever. He, I guess he already accomplished it. But I guess I would say the Holy Roman Empire, you know, if you, if you interpret to some degree that song being about uh, the, the fight that humans wage against the undead, and the, you could imagine why the backing of the Holy Roman Empire, um, which, you know, supposedly at the time, I guess, was had the had the backing of God and, yes, and, the, sure. and the Catholic Church, you can imagine why that might play a role, might be an important uh, factor yes. in, in the battle. That's awesome. <laughs> That's awesome. And and listen, for anyone who's listening, that is such a great, like this is 12 years later or 14 after you wrote that song and your band that whole album and the way that you can still do an exegesis on it and the way you were thinking it through that is the kind of rigor that's the rigor that separates i think and um man i've taken up too much of your time ezra is on social media on twitter you can find him and uh go listen to all four of these albums go read the blog he wrote when he was young man thank you so much please to you and yours stay safe during this stay yeah, home you too. 